0: that's hypothetical, Hyperthetical, H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.
1: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Heading to the row and beyond this week. It's episode 457 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, Carnival Row now streaming on Prime Video. I got to spend a lot of time with members of the cast and executive producer Eric Olison. and I'm going to share those interviews with you this week. I mean, Andrew Gower's joining me, Jameson Merchant, Caroline Ford, Artur Frosian and so many more to talk about the second and final season of Carnival Row. Really going to take a deep dive into some of these characters and the story coming up. There's also a brand new book out from Marvel from Marvel Books and Disney Books. It's called Winter Soldier, the Cold, Cold Front, and guess what? I've got author Mackenzie Lee back on the show this week to talk about her latest story, and if that wasn't enough, a couple of guests from some returning adult swim series as well. The creators of those shows can't wait to share those with you. And by the way, also a couple of reviews. Legion of Superheroes, I'll finally review that, and Disney's Strange World. As well. There's a ton to get to, so I think I better shut up and let's do that. The interviews with the executive producer and cast of Carnival Row are next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Hey, this is David Besus from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: The fight for survival is on the second and final season of Carnival Row, now streaming on Prime Video, and this is just such an immersive show that I really, really have always loved and being in that world just so incredible and visually striking. So I was so happy to get a chance to talk to some of the members of the cast and the executive producer this week all about what we can expect from this second and final season. So let's actually start things off with executive producer Eric Olison. and he's got some great insight, as you would expect, into this final season.
3: Hi, James. Nice to meet you.
1: Hey, Eric. Pleasure to speak with you again. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks
3: for uh, jumping on the horn to chat Carnival Row.
1: Thank you, man. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts in this final season. How challenging was it for you to fit this whole story into these 10 episodes?
3: It was a challenge, but it was a lot of fun. And we had a controlling idea at the center of it, which was to explore the different ways that characters respond to one central question, which is, are we defined by our DNA or are we defined by the actions and the choices and the ways that we treat people in life by the things over which we get a vote? because we don't get a vote over whether we're born a fairy or a, a fawn with horns or a human being, but we do get a vote in how we behave in life. So that was the organizing principle.
1: No doubt about that. That kind of leads me to my like next question because we learned a lot about Philo at the end of last season and we saw the choice that he made to stay with Vignette. So in, in this season, do you kind of feel like he's struggling with his identity more, his loyalty, or maybe a little bit of both? Both.
3: I think that his ultimate arc, not to give away spoilers, is to wrestle with the question, am I a a fairy or am I a human being? And ultimately figure out by the end of the season that maybe it's not what I was born that matters, but what I choose to do in life that matters.
1: I love the story for Tourmaline this season. Very, very different for her. As a matter of fact, how much can you tease for us about that coming up?
3: Well, I feel like Tourmaline is kind of the secret weapon of the show. I think she's Carla Chrome is just a she's a double threat. She's not just a brilliant actor and also a great human being, like to everybody to work with. But she's also a very talented screenwriter on her own, working on other shows. Tourmaline has a a critical role in the in the season. And, and moves from kind of a supporting character to somebody who becomes a core element of the way that everything goes down.
1: So how much can you tell us about the New Dawn and how much their arrival is really going to shake things up?
3: Well, who's saying that the New Dawn is going to arrive anywhere? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about, man. But uh, I'm just saying that the New Dawn is an interesting way of exploring social strife and how does one respond to social injustice? And there are different ways that one can do that. And they're going to explore a, a fairly violent way of responding to the injustices that we're all witnessing and or experiencing in real life.
1: All right, I'm gonna go one more for you, Eric, before I let you go. You guys have kept the character of Leonora under wraps quite a bit. We don't really know a whole lot about her, but we know that Joanne Whaley is a fantastic actress. What was it like to bring her on board?
3: A joy. Joanne is a friend of mine personally. It's a long way from Sister Maggie and Daredevil, oh, yeah. but as far as I can, uh, I I intend to work with Joanne every show I ever do for the rest of my life. She's a delight, and she will have also a, an important part of how the Rube Goldberg of the whole season fits together.
1: Yes, yeah, she will, and we'll find out all about that. The final season of Carnival Row premieres on Prime Video on February the seventeenth. Eric, thank you so much for hanging thank out. We appreciate it.
3: All right, have a good one.
1: And since we're talking about that character and we're talking about the new Dawn, it's only right to kind of transition into talking to Andrew Gower, who plays Ezra Spernrose, Tamsin Merchant, who plays Imogen Spernrose, and David Gyasi, who plays Argarius Estrian. So they have a very important role in that story. Let's hear more about it from them. So How's everybody doing?
4: Great. Hey James, Cram really
1: well. It's a fantastic season. I, I know that because I've seen most of it. So I got to say, Agrius and Imogen—they fled for a better life. Tamson and, and, and David, and they—they're going to face some unforeseen challenges here coming up. So, how much can you tell us about how difficult it is for them early on this season?
5: Gosh, I don't think we should do any spoilers, but it gets pretty tricky. All of the—I would say—all okay. of the the comforts and the luxuries that they're both used to are very quickly taken away. <laughs> Mm. and for Imogen, that I think I would say is uh that's not something she ever thought especially running away with a multi-millionaire incredibly wealthy fawn I don't think she ever anticipated that all of life's little luxuries would be would be snatched from her uh as quickly as they are
6: yeah that they are
7: I think it's fair to say that they are greatly tested on lots of levels you know internally externally and that you know that was quite exciting actually to read and go oh well what what does this mean and then we'd finish it at two and be waiting for three and four it'd be quite nice to kind of figure out and step through it uh, rather tentatively because I think both of us really cared about their relationship and where that had got to gotten to so yeah it's it's a bit hairy out there for them
1: no doubt about that. Now, Andrew's social rank in society, like the Berg, is extremely important, and scandal certainly doesn't make things any easier for the Spur Rose family. So, desperate men do desperate things. Are we kind of maybe underestimating what Ezra is really capable of heading into this season?
8: Yeah, I think as you say, desperate, desperate men do desperate things, and I think uh, to be to be left without his his sister in a in a house and a, and a society where he doesn't really have a purpose anymore is yeah he's he's the hero of his own story to to many he's the uh, one of the antagonists in the piece but i i like to play characters like that who are the hero of their own stories and that's what he he's out to he's out to seek justice and yeah i think everybody's in for a in for a few surprises of how how desperate he is to go about getting what he wants
1: I would say that's very true. And really quickly for you, you Leonora is one of the most mysterious characters heading into the season. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we know that there's a little bit of an early action, between, early interaction between Imogen and her. So what was it like working with Joanne in those early scenes to kind of introduce that character?
5: Oh, Joanne Wally is just such an amazing person. It was so fun working with her. It was really fun having a sort of very powerful Fawn, female fawn character to butt heads with. Because Imogen, I think, is she's fawnish in her own way, in that she's quite headstrong and she will kind of go head to head with someone. And Joanne just came in and was an absolute boss. And it was just so great to play opposite that power. Because Imogen has has had her own power in her own world and has wielded it sometimes like a sort of slightly despotic empress in her own. House and and to actually then come in for Imogen, Imogen to step into Leonora's world and be confronted with this very powerful person with very strong ideas was that was really fun to riff off each other to see their similarities as well as the differences it was really cool.
1: No doubt. And wait to see what this trio's got going on in this final season because it's amazing. The final season of Cardinal Varro comes back to Prime Video on February the 17th. and David, Andrew, thank you all so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.
8: Cheers, (laughs) buddy. Thanks so much.
1: Since we're talking about Carnival Row, we can't not talk about the Berg, right? So let's chat with Caroline Ford, who plays Sophie Longerbane, and Artie Froshan, who plays Jonah Breakspear. You know how interesting their relationship is. Let's dig into that with them. Artie and Caroline, how are you doing? Very Very
5: well, thank you.
1: So let's throw this one out to the both of you. I feel like the alliance between Jonah and Sophie's always been a very uneasy one, at least in my opinion anyway. So how would the both of you describe that relationship?
5: Unstable, fragile, lustful, confusing.
7: Paranoid. (laughs) Paranoid. Paranoid. I think uneasy is a really great word, actually, and sums it up pretty well. I mean, they're sort of in an alliance, but also locked in a battle of, of wits, you know, so you can never, neither of them quite know where they stand with the other. And that's quite exciting to play and to watch, I think.
5: And they need each other.
1: Oh, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt about that. Yeah. Same. Caroline, I was trying to figure out a way to ask you this without spoiling anything. So I'm going to try this. So so Sophie presents herself. She's really strong and confident. We see that a lot. You see it in her eyes, too. Do you kind of think we're going to get to see more of who Sophie truly is and what motivates her this season, though? And I think you already know where I'm going with this.
5: Yes, you definitely do. I think this season focuses a lot more on what's underneath the mask, Sophie mask, Sophie game face. And then what I love about this season is that, yeah, you understand where she's coming from a lot more. You meet the interior Sophie more in depth.
1: No but doubt you, about you, that. Yeah. yeah, You guys will find out soon enough. Already, I kind of feel like we didn't get to see... Jonah the Chancellor a lot last season. Obviously, it's just kind of kind of thrown at him a little bit. So, how do you feel like he's handling the pressure, especially early on this season?
7: I don't think he's doing too well, actually. I mean, <laughs> he's got big boots to fill, and you know the the society or the the city that he is suddenly at, at the at the steering wheel of is in more disarray than it's ever been, which is saying quite something. Because you know, it's saying a lot because the first season it was already pretty chaotic so he i think he's really struggling he's struggling with being able to do it but also whether he wants to do it part of him i think wants to be a strong leader and part of him it doesn't and and wants to run away and and doesn't think that this is his destiny but he's he's caught in between those two things
1: absolutely i'm kind of curious to see how you guys answer this next one so who would you say is your character's biggest rival or the one that concerns them the most
5: (laughs) So I, I would say that Sophie's biggest rival is in this is Weintraub <laughs> because he is smart and sees sees things and is coming from a world completely other than hers. So she doesn't understand him fully, which is terrifying for her.
1: Artie, what do you think?
7: I think it's probably Sophie for Jonah. Although <laughs> the, problem is the, the thing about Jonah's position is that he's very lonely. He can't even trust his his most intimate advisors you know and and he's struggling with that also with Millworthy, and mm-hmm. so, you know he doesn't know if these people are his closest confidants or his his worst rivals and he's trying to figure that out the whole time and so it's quite um discombobulating for the poor guy <laughs> yeah
1: and wait till you guys see how it goes down on february the 17th that's when the final season of carnival Row premieres on prime video caroline already loved your work this season thank you so much for the time
2: thanks thank you
1: Finally, we're gonna get two opposite ends of the spectrum here. We've got Jamie Harris who plays Sergeant Dombey on this season, and Jay Ali, who plays Kane, one of the Black Raven in this season as well. And they have a very interesting dynamic between the two of them. Let's see what they think about what's coming up this season. Good afternoon. Well, you guys have got a lot a lot of creepy stuff going on this season as well. Jay, I actually want to start with you because I think that Kane's one of those characters I find myself rooting for the most. When I was watching these early episodes. So how much of a roller coaster ride, man, is this, is this early on in the season for you?
8: Oh man, I mean, like it's it's such an interesting, fun character to play. I mean, this is something that Eric does. I mean, there's so many, there's so much conflict in a lot of like the characters in terms of like they're not these types of people to do these types of things, but what pushes people to do? to do these cut types of things. So, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, like, you know, we see like terrorist attacks or whatever it is and we see the brutality of what happens and we think who could do this and not justifying anything of that at all, but like, there's always, there's no smoke without fire, you know? And it's like, you know, seeing what makes people go to these extents to, to do such horrendous things is always an interesting Element to take of it, and like you say, you are rooting for him. But at the same time, he does do a few things where you're like, "Ah, come on, man!" But yeah, it's it's, it's it was a very interesting character to play.
1: And Jamie, for you, we've seen we've seen Dombey be pretty ruthless in the past, and with all-out war, it seems like all-out war is coming with the row sooner rather than later. Are we only kind of seeing a fraction of what he's capable of going into this season?
4: Yeah, I I think as as the sort of as the oppression to, to, to the row rises. And the sort of the political backstabbing takes on a, a sort of train of its own. I think uh, Dombey is is kind of, in, in a sense, stuck in the middle. You know, he is a defender of everything that is important to uh, the Berg because that's his job. And that's um, and he doesn't concern himself with the politics of what's going on because that's above his pay grade. And he is he is exceptionally cruel to the Critch. But in his mind, you must understand, he never believes there's a monster. He believes the critch have been attacking. Mm -hmm. Therefore, what he does in his mind is justified because he is protecting a way of life that is absolutely being destroyed. And and that's on every level. It's not just physical or, or revolutionary or violent. It's morally, it's spiritually, it's religious. Everything is being destroyed that he holds dear. And he protects it verminly.
1: No doubt about it. Jay, real quickly, I want to ask you about the bond between Cain and Vignette, because I really think it's a cool part of this season. Is it kind of like more of a mutual respect thing between the two of them? Is it a brother-sister dynamic? How do you describe it?
8: Yeah, it's a mutual respect thing. I mean, like from I think he sees her as their leader. I mean, like he sees her as someone who is someone who could take the faith folk back into the light kind of thing, who can be their savior, and he would follow her anywhere, and he believes that that she's she's the one who can stop these horrible things happening to the Fae folk. And um, yeah, he's he's her right hand man, and he'll follow her anywhere.
1: You guys can see how it goes down February seventeenth when the last season of Carnival promo- Carnival Robe comes back to Prime Video. Jamie J, thank you guys both so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. For- and that's one of the many things that you've got to love about this show. There, there's all kinds of. Just political intrigue and there's so much great action there's the great fantasy aspect and then this season even dials it up even more by having an outside perspective on things as well and how they were able to pull it off and kind of take all of these things and wrap it up until one final season is pretty amazing to me you can see for yourself right now carnival row now streaming on prime video i've been a fan of the show from the beginning ever since i saw it for the first time at Comic Con and I think that if you haven't started it yet, I mean it's it's only two seasons, so you could easily binge this thing over a weekend, which I would totally recommend, by the way. That's gonna do it for my interviews with the cast and executive producer of Carnival Row from Prime Video. Up next gonna chat with Mackenzie Lee. There's a new Marvel book that's out and I'm gonna tell you all about it with her next on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
7: This is Artis Fico artist of revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: If you're a Marvel fan, this is one that definitely needs to be on your radar. New book, The Winter Soldier Cold Front, is now available from Disney Books. And this is a name you might recognize from an interview we did a couple years ago as well for another Marvel book. It's author Mackenzie Lee. Mackenzie, how are you?
9: I'm great. Happy to be here with you.
1: So happy to have you back. And I was looking forward to figuring out what your third book was going to be in this marvel series so how excited were you to tell the story of the winter soldier
9: wildly excited the the ed Brubaker run of winter soldier comics is, is like what made me a comic book reader and the first like set of comic books that i really fell in love with and because of those bucky barnes and the winter soldier have been my favorite comic book character pretty much forever as long as i've been reading comic books so it was this was this was the dream project they've all been great but this one was the dream
1: I think this is the one you were teasing when the last time we talked. You said you couldn't say what it was. I'm fairly Probably, certain you were talking yeah, about this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's the difficulty, though. I mean, this is a very popular character, obviously, and and a lot of that has to do with what happened in the what's been happening in the MCU and things like that. So, different fans have actually been introduced to Bucky Barnes in different ways. So, when you approach this story, did you feel like you had to kind of think about? what would appeal to both fans of the MCU movies but also like yourself the comics as well
9: yes and no i kind of learned my lesson with the the first book which was loki in that you can't please everybody and i was so like with with loki cuz i mean the, there's lots of bucky fans there are loki fans and they all had something to say to me about Loki and so I sort of got caught up in trying to make my Loki a Loki for everybody right I wanted it to be Jack Kirby's Loki and Tom Hiddleston's Loki and Neil Gaiman's Loki and the Norse poetic Ada Loki and then eventually realized that I he was so weighed down I was like you gotta just you gotta put all that aside and just write this character as you as you see him and that's what I was hired to do. So I feel kind of like by the time I got to Bucky I was like ah oh, this is a snap after Loki. No fans scare me after the Loki fans.
1: You had to get the first ca- hardest character out of the way first. I truly did. That I was off to the was baptism
9: by fire. It's been a <laughs> cakewalk since then.
1: What way to get involved with that. So Coldfront actually has two timelines at play here, which I love. 1941. We've got 1954 as well. I think that makes the story a lot more interesting, too. So it's Bucky's story. But did it almost feel like you were working with two different characters, which makes sense.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And that was part of like what appeals to me so much about The Winter Soldier and about Bucky Barnes is are these questions of identity? And who you are when sort of everything essential about you is stripped away from you, what's left and how does who you are always stay and does it sort of fight its way through, through any sort of veneers that, that are put over it. So it, it felt like writing two different characters because it is two different characters in a lot of ways. It's the same person, but two different characters that then sort of intersect and one of them realizes who he is at the at the end. And it was it was a tremendously fun challenge. I I knew from the start that I wanted to do these two timelines. I presented them because when I initially talked to Marvel, they sort of said, do you want to write about Bucky or do you want to write about the Winter Soldier? And I said, I want to do both. When you have this character who's existing as two different people in two different timelines, I'm like, why not take advantage of this and use this to create these sort of parallel storylines that eventually intersect and talk about these, these two different time periods. So it's something I've always wanted to do as a writer is write a dual timeline book. And this just felt like the, the perfect opportunity and the perfect vehicle for it.
1: When you're doing something like that, do you kind of start with, does the idea start with the intersection point or does the intersection point just kind of find it? Do you find your way there as you're writing, putting the story together?
9: For me, it started with the intersection point. I think if I hadn't planned it out beforehand, I would have fumbled around in the dark for a long time before I got to that. And I used to be the kind of writer that would do that. And I would sort of feel my way through a story. And then at the end, be like, ah, now that I've worked on this for a long time, I know what it's about. And Marvel has sort of by necessity made me an outliner because you have to plot everything so intensely beforehand and they have to approve it and make sure you're not conflicting with what somebody else is doing or... Or messing with somebody else's timeline, or or what have you, and it's actually super super effective. Turns out to write a plan ahead of time, especially when you're when you're doing a book that that is a little bit more challenging plot wise, and to manage these two different timelines. So it was definitely in my brain from the start. I pitched this as a dual timeline book. I pitched it as sort of a John le Carré, Ian Fleming sort of pastiche featuring Bucky Barnes. And yeah, if I hadn't planned it, I don't think I I don't think I would I would still be writing it now.
1: And I do love both timelines, too, which is very difficult to do in a story like thank this, because you. you always send t- I always tend to find right. myself. There's always one, one that you want
9: to flip a. I, I struggle with that with dual point of view books or when there's like an ensemble cast that they mm-hmm. all narrate. I'm like, I just want to flip ahead to the to the favorite character. But so I didn't do a, that this time. Phrase. I did not do that. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I couldn't help but wonder, though, as I'm as I'm reading through this, which was more fun to write, though, your young, rebellious Bucky or that mysterious winter soldier character?
9: They're different. I mean, I'm always a little bit more attracted to characters that have a little bit more more of an edge to them. I like writing snark and banter, and I love a righteously indignant teenager who has no idea what they're talking about. And so I was more attracted, I think, to Bucky because I could he can he can be a little Sassy and he can talk back and he's a snarky jerk and um, he's six, like he's a 16 year old boy, whereas the winter soldier is very much like essentially created to comply and to not question and to follow orders and not talk back to things. So I found the humor though in the winter soldier timeline comes through the people around him, which specifically he has a handler he works with called Rostova. And I enjoyed sort of the the dynamic of the two of them of, of him sort of being the straight man to her. Making very dark jokes that he has no idea what she's talking about because he just sort—he's essentially a blank slate. So I ended up finding a way to sort of snark and snark in both timelines. But there's there's more—I don't know. There's more. There's more discovery in the Winter Soldier timeline. He's actively chasing like who he is. Bucky is sort of unfurling the mystery as he goes, and those present different challenges and also different fun as a writer in the Bucky timeline. He's interacting with this this young sort of chess chess champion who he ends up having to go on the run with when they both accidentally witness a murder together. And they were sort of a fun dynamic to play off of. And I, I enjoyed writing about that sort of teenage obsession. When you meet someone and within five minutes, you're like, I can't imagine my life without you. And also I, I love stories about people who, who come into our lives very briefly and yet still have a very deep impact on us. So all that being said, there is no answer. I loved them both. They were both really fun for different reasons.
1: Of course, you'd say that. And I can't blame you either, by the way. That's not a cop out at all. I, I loved them both, too.
9: It, it's, you and re- I, now, now that I'm at the end of the series, I keep getting the question of like, which one was your favorite to write? And it's like, well, that's not fair. Yeah, I loved right. them, hated them all. Right. They and all gave me trouble. They were all wonderfully fun. Like, you can't exactly. Pick a favorite.
1: Exactly. You bring up Rostov, though, and that was a character that really caught my attention because I keep thinking, OK, where did I where have I heard that name before? And I know that there was Rostov in the stories in the in the comics but not a rostova i know you've got karpov in the story as well so talk about the decision to bring the character of rostova in and that dynamic between the two of them a little bit more because i found myself really hating her at first but liking her more as the story went on
9: yeah she i mean she's she's kind of meant to do that i think the winter soul v, v feels very similarly to to you on that front the her name actually comes from tolstoy all the all the code names in the winter soldier section of the story all come from Tolstoy. Cause I'm a huge nerd and my like, Main reference is is Tolstoy. One of my big pandemic projects, which is when I sort of started first thinking about this book, was during the pandemic. Was I read War and Peace after a years long obsession with an electro pop opera called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which is it only gets nerdier from here, which is based on 75 pages of War and Peace. And so one of the characters in War and Peace is Natasha Rostova, which is where Rostova's name came from. And then the Winter Soldier's codename at the time is Vronsky, which is Count Vronsky Vronsky from Anna Karenna. And then as you dig back into his sort of past, we get into all these all these other Tolstoy-related code names. Anyway, all of that to say, Rostova came from when I was actually researching a, a previous book I wrote called Bygone Badass Broads, which is about, it's a nonfiction book, true stories of women in history who you probably don't know about, but definitely should. I ran into stories about the female sniper squadrons that were employed by the Soviet Union in World War II, and these all-female sniper battalions, who were some of the some of the sort of most formidable soldiers on the front. And I remember reading about them, and and in particular, Rostova came from. She was initially inspired by one woman who's I I won't try to say her name because I will embarrass myself with my Russian pronunciation. But she sort of became this ambassador for Russian Russian relations, but also for women in the war effort during World War II, and like went to the United States and met with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt at some point. And I remember thinking, like, this is a fascinating story. This is a fascinating woman. What happens after though? Like, how do you come back from doing something like this? And from living these sort of four or five very intense years of this very singular purpose, which is so, so bleak and dark and focused. And like, what do you do with your life after that? How do you, how do you ever have a normal life after being that person? And that's sort of where... Where Rostova came from was wondering like how do you come back from being a soldier and what happens to the people who can never quite shake the war and who are willing to in order for her to just like keep living she's been willing to make the sacrifice of she sacrifices pieces of her her humanity and her own identity but then she starts to get attached to to her new little her new little spy friend
1: and she is a great character too and by the way war and peace plays a role in this story I won't tell you what it is but once you see it you won't forget it once you read the story for sure. Mackenzie, I feel like the term anti-hero gets overused sometimes, especially when you're talking about the comic book world and these and characters like I was this. gonna so, say,
9: especially now that it's a especially now that it's a Taylor Swift song, everybody's using it. Right, exactly.
1: It. And, this, and the sun that song is everywhere now too. So do you kind of feel is anti-hero an accurate description of the of this character, or would you say it's something else? Because I kind of feel like maybe that's not the right label if there even is one.
9: I, I think with, with the winter soldier, it's hard because he's working under circuit. He's working under sort of a false reality, right? How do you hold someone accountable for their actions when, when their version they're being presented an alternate version of, of reality, but also how do you hold yourself accountable? Like we see that a little bit in the Falcon and the winter soldier TV show. We see it in the Ed Brubaker comics, like of Bucky wrestling with this idea of like, I did these things. I wasn't, totally myself when I did these things, but I did do them. Like, how do I atone for this? I think out of the two of them, out of the winter soldier and, and Bucky, I think Bucky is kind of more the anti-hero because he's sort of just, he's sort of a little shit. Like, and, and that's part of what, what makes him a fun character. And his, his journey over the course of the book though, is realizing that even in these sort of moral wars where we're fighting against this absolute bad of, of this big bad of Germany, right. And the Nazis, there's still going to be collateral damage. There's going to be people who, who get lost and hurt along the way. And how do you reconcile those things? And again, at what point, how how do you decide what you're willing to sacrifice and what pieces of your humanity you're willing to give up? And we see that more with Bucky Barnes in the comics, because his job is sort of to go in after Captain America and clean up the mess and get his hands dirty in a way that our, our savior of American patriotism and goodness and moral right and wrong can't. And I wanted to sort of set that up and, and set up Bucky realizing that there was no there is no good and bad. there is no black and white when you're talking about these sort of large scale global conflicts and learning to reconcile and learning learning sort of his own limits and what he's willing to sacrifice and what he's willing to to get away with. And I think that's part of what makes an antihero. and i I, I think it's an accurate term, but I also think it's been sort of a bastardized term at this point because we're all anti-heroes. We're all we all act in our best interests sometimes over others' interests. We all, do selfish things. We all indulge our own pride and our own fear and all those things that sort of traditionally define an anti-hero. The only people who aren't anti-heroes are people like Steve Rogers, who is created to be sort of a force for for moral fortitude and his sort of defining feature is his goodness in the face of all else. And that's why I think we like anti-heroes is because we all, we all are kind of anti-heroes ourselves
1: relatable whether you like it or not basically kind yeah. of thing yeah no doubt about that absolutely so Mackenzie, before stare, stare i let you not go not into la-
9: the abyss plus the abyss stares back at you oh
1: look at that that is just knowledge that i love I love quotes like that so <laughs> Mackenzie, before i let you go last time we chatted and it was a couple years ago but you talked about how big of a captain marvel fan you are how's the lobbying going for getting uh carol danvers to be a story <laughs> that you get to tell <laughs>
9: You know, this this is looking like it's going to be the end of the road with me and Marvel. This is my last my last contracted book with them. But there are so many great writers working on working with Carol Danvers and telling those stories. I'm so excited about the new film. And honestly, like sometimes it's it's great to be the writer of these stories. Sometimes it's even more fun to get to be the reader and just like engage in this totally uncomplicated fangirl way. So I'm right now it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but I'm not mad about that. I'm enjoying where I'm at.
1: Well, make sure you get in this book, The Winter Soldier Soldier Cold Front, and it is an amazing Bucky Barnes and Winter Soldier story, which is now available wherever books are sold from Disney Books and on digital if you want to go that route as well. Make sure you get her other books too, not just Loki, but Gamora and Nebula as well, which is another really good story. Mackenzie Lee, thank you so much for taking the time today. really appreciate it.
9: Thank you for having me.
1: And if there's one character that's really gained popularity, popularity exponentially since the MCU started, I think it is the winter soldier when you see a story like this it kind of plays on both sides of that personality it's really really fun in a way that and this book kind of capitalizes i think on a way that the falcon and the winter soldier kind of didn't for bucky's story and and, and it kind of lives in those two different worlds and there is a little bit of that atonement factor that factors into this book as well it has so many moving parts but the story's told so well in such a linear way I think you'll enjoy both parts of it. So make sure you're getting the Winter Soldier cold front. Wherever books are sold right now, Marvel's got another winner for you. And Mackenzie Lee, very much a part of that. I want to thank her for joining me once again this week. Up next, we'll head to Adult Swim to talk about a couple of new returning shows for a special. Could there be more? We'll talk about King Star King and Ballmaster's Rubicon. A couple of great interviews up next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Hello, my name is Alison Larkin, and I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. This podcast brings Jane Austen's stories to the 21st century, along with commentary from me and conversations with fascinating people who all share a love of Jane Austen. And of course, we had to start with none other than pride and prejudice. So join me as we embark on a journey through some of the most wonderful stories I know. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry
3: 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Adult Swim getting a little nostalgic with us. A couple of shows that you might remember, Ball Masters and Kingstar King, both have specials coming not just to Adult Swim and HBO Max. Actually, we have King Star King on HBO Max right now. And Ballmasters Rubicon, which is going to be hitting Adult Swim at midnight on the 20th. And, of course, coming to HBO Max next day. I actually get to talk to the creators of both shows. I want to start off with Christy Caracas, who was the creator of Ballmasters Rubicon, and just kind of trying to figure out with him what you're going to be able to expect from this upcoming revival. So here you go. Christy, how you doing?
6: good. Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Good to have you here. So it's been almost three years. Can you believe three years since the big cliffhanger from season two? Fans have been hanging on for more ever since. Was there ever kind of a time, though, that you felt like you might not be able to come back and revisit that?
6: Yeah, the whole time it was crazy because it was like, you know, it was COVID happened and all these crazy things happened. And the special has been sort of brewing for a while. And there's been these weird little not hiccups but you know again covid and everything i'm just so excited that people can see it now cuz it picks up right where season 2 left off and i wish it could have come out sooner but it but it but it, it's coming out and it's i'm really psyched about it i'm just psyched I hope people like it and
1: worth the wait i'm sure i'm sure that fans will feel the same way about that for sure one thing although that that fans have kind of noticed since the trailers come out though for Ballmaster's Rubicon was that there the the animation style is a bit different and some of the character designs are, are a bit different as well. So why do you feel like this was the right time to kind of change things up a little bit?
6: We changed studios. I mean, we, we did the first two seasons at Titmouse, and what happened was, um, I always wished I could do it in an anime studio. I just didn't know how, or I didn't have the connections or whatever. I, I have a friend, this guy, Silas Hickey, he has his company Custom Nuts, he, he works in Japan. And I go to animation festivals and I was talking to him at this festival, Annecy in France, and we were talking and I'm like, man, I'd love to do it like, you know, as an anime. He's like, well, I know these studios and we started talking and we, we, he talked to some people and we kind of made it happen. And Adult Swim was into it. So we worked with Studio 4C, which I've been a fan of. I mean, I couldn't even believe it happened. I've been a fan of like Studio 4C made mind game and Tekken Concrete and Detroit Metal City. So many things I love. I mean, so many things. I just couldn't believe it they happened to have a slot when we were ready and and it just it just really worked out takashi nakamura was the animation director he was the animation director of akira and and a whole bunch of other things i mean he worked on you know ghibli films and all this i mean really the stuff that got me into anime when i was younger so it was totally amazing so when we did that i would send rough sketches and we were kind of like hey why don't you guys redesign the show you know in your style and let's and let's and do a new look and we talked a lot about it because in. The, in this is spoiler talk, but, you know, they go into space and originally I was thinking of it being kind of a Macross Gundam kind of look, but mm-hmm. I, I just sort of felt like it was too obvious and I was like, well, maybe we go retro because Nakamura Nakamerson had worked on a lot of things like Gold Light and Yetterman and these kind of older 70s shows and he likes that style and I was like, I love retro stuff and I was like, well, nobody's really doing retro right now so maybe it would be an unexpected, like make it kind of cute and retro mm-hmm. and kind of bright and like he had said he was talking about like the color palette, like, like it's like candy colors. And, you know, it's it I mean, it doesn't look nothing like the other one, but it looks pretty different. But I think it was cool. It was a cool, different look. And I, I really like it. So it was fun.
1: I, I really like it, too. I actually, the, I mean, the biggest departure, I mean, a lot of them look pretty much. But gas was the biggest departure as far as character design. You, you almost lightened it up a little bit, which, I mean, certainly goes in line with her character, but she's a big, she's rough, but she's also lightened up, too. So what we went into her new look specifically because she's the most different out of all of them, I think.
6: The whole palette lightened up. I mean, if you look at it, like, I mean, Lulu's, Lulu's different. Oh, for um, sure. They're all pretty different. Even Krasar, I mean, he's not really different, but his face looks different. It's weird, like, I noticed weird little differences, but, like, when they just did the lineup and they're doing the colors, I was like, this just looks great. Like, I just let them run with it. I was really happy with it. I mean, it was I I won't lie, when I first saw it, I was like, whoa, it was kind of a shock. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, this is kind of cool. It's so different looking, you know?
1: And it does have that classic anime look, which is why I love the new designs, too. They're they're very, very cool. Speaking of Krazar, he's always been kind of a larger-than-life figure on the show. We kind of see in the trailer that the baby ball's not too happy with him. And I know we can't get to spoiler territory here, but can you kind of tease for us about how big of an impact Krazar is going to have on this first episode specifically?
6: Well, we could be spoilery, but I, what do you think?
1: Totally up to you, man. Well, your I'm show, saying, your rules.
6: <laughs> special one thing with the show that we we were one thing with the special we talked about was the show is always so about like Gaz Gaz Ball and Ace and Ballmaster and the team, and since things have changed so much, we were like, let's and Crazar is kind of a fan favorite, and we were like, let's oh, make yeah. this Crazar story. And we we talked a lot about combining characters that don't usually have the Ace story. So like like Ball and Crazar. Don't usually interact, and and they're mm-hmm. both so funny. It was like it kind of just—I mean, it really wrote itself. When we started working out, we're like, "This is just funny. These two are funny together. They are kind of the two—the two that you don't think would—if you think who's gonna, you know, buck up and save the day, you don't think it's them. Not that no. I'm, But but they're 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 you know they're challenged, and we're you know seeing another side of them that was fun and interesting to us. And and characters like Ace and Gaz usually are in the limelight. They're not as much in the limelight, I would say, in this special.
1: At the same time though we've seen that you know Ace has kind of been given the mantle as champion but it feels like Gaz has kind of always like been the leader always been that linchpin of the team so do you think maybe we'll get to see Gaz as a little bit in a little bit more of that leadership role this season or in this special because I feel like it's been kind of drifting towards that anyway a little bit
6: Yeah I mean the whole I think the whole arc of like season 1 and season 2 is that Gaz being this mess up and you know kind of redeeming themselves and stepping up and I I think I think she did that in season two, and now this is kind of like again. We were always talking about trying not to keep things one note, and having the characters kind of change and grow and evolve, and 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 what that might what that might mean. And even with the special, like this special, we're hoping is this is kind of the launching point of a season three or or more specials, and it really sets up what could come next. And I think it could be really fun for all the characters because they're they're all kind of going to. I mean, we had so many story ideas. We we brainstormed all these ideas that we didn't even make it in the special that wow. like, we're so excited. If we have more, like we have so many things of where this is going and for all the characters, which would be really fun, I think, to kind of see them grow and be challenged and will they step up and can they, you know, save humanity and stuff.
1: <laughs> that is good to hear. Fans will be excited about that for sure. Talking to Christy Caracas, who's the creator of Ball Masters, and this one Ballmasters Rubicon going to premiere on February the 20th on Adult Swim and next day on hbo max now christy I-, I gotta tell you i'm watching this thing and it's hard not to love the music i mean i was getting david bowie vibes a whole bunch of other stuff just listening to the music in this special so did you kind of have any influences when coming up with the soundtrack for this thing because because i loved it
6: joe wong who does the music for he did the music on super jail and Ballmasters, and then morgan fallon sings on that kind of well this is kind of a spoiler too there's this kind of anime theme song but um it was inspired by there's an old anime con animation it's i think it's daikon 4 or daikon 5 that's like it's got this ELO twilight song and it's kind of like inspired by that and it's this just just the most insane animated sequence you've ever seen if you look it up on youtube and it was all made by fans and they ended up becoming studio gynix this is an 80s animation it's old it's like this kind of it's like a girl and like she looks like a playboy bunny kind of and she's riding huh. and she's like fighting but it's it's unlicensed so she's fighting all these things like Every character you know is in it like it's got Yamato it's got it's got the alien from alien it's got Superman and Bat wow. got like all this weird stuff <laughs> crazy but that was sort of we were like let's make it kind of like the opening of you know the daikon so uh that was some fans have already I've seen comments that they they recognize it and some people have never heard of it but it's it's a pretty famous anime thing like from the 80s.
1: That's wild. You I didn't know about it. So you certainly I just learned something today. I'm gonna have to go look that thing up now.
6: It's so amazing. So that was kind of the it's kind of that's the Easter egg kind of
1: very cool, very cool. So we we know that in the special, you know, the teams of Earth gonna, gonna unite to try and save humanity, save Earth, things like that. They typically compete against each other. So why does it seem like this could absolutely be a recipe for disaster.
6: I mean, it is. These guys are morons. They're like, you know, that's that's the thing. I mean, you've got all these teams that hate each other and are they going to, you know, get along and stick together? And, you know, it's funny. There was this kind of theme. Again, I don't want to be giving this all away, but th- there was, you know, this was all during COVID and this all, all this crazy stuff was happening in the world. Like, like everything's so polarized and this or that. Polarizing
1: is like, perfect. Yes, there you
6: yeah, go. BLM was happening. There was riots. There was like, the, you know, got scrump you got De- Democrats republicans it was kind of like I remember we were talking about like man in the special Humanity's so screwed it was like they need to unite like this have this unity of why Humanity's special and that's sort of a theme I'm ruining the special but it's kind of like well, we need to <laughs> stick together and you know unite and be good people to each other you know we gotta we gotta love each other and kind of stick together and that's kind of a theme in there that comes out it's like you know it's funny I lived in New York when 9 11 happened and it was like all of a sudden everyone was like, yeah, we're all, you know, we're all together. We're all, we're all together. But then, you know, after a while everyone forgets and they get back to normal and people need to kind of chill out and love each other. You know?
1: I love that. Yes. That is, a, that is absolutely what we need to do for sure. <laughs> we will definitely be looking forward to that Ballmasters Rubicon got a premiere on February the 20th at midnight on adult swim. Also going to be available next day on HBO max. You can see the first two seasons of the show actually on HBO max right now. Christy Caracas, Thank you so much for the time today. I really, really appreciate it.
6: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate
1: it. And now let's find out more about the crazy world of King Star King with J.J. Villard. J.J., what is up?
2: Bonjour, comment (laughs) allez-vous?
1: I wish I could respond. I really (laughs) (laughs) did. I I skipped French lessons. So, man, honestly, though, it's been 10 years since we saw King Star King. What has this journey back been like for you?
2: It's insane, man. Like, you know, it's actually longer than 10 years because I created the idea before it even aired, obviously. And mm-hmm. so uh, the journey was crazy. It started with a phone call from an adult from Adult swim and an apology. They just said like, hey, we're sorry. Sorry we canceled King Starking." And I was like, okay, no problem. They're like, we want to bring it back. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I, I, just, I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, to what capacity? They're like, I'm like, please say serious. Please say serious. They're like, we want to do a special. So I was like, all right, I'll take it, you know? So it started off like, as I do with any project, I started drawing the characters again in my sketchbook. And something didn't feel right. Drawing King, all buff and ripped and doing all that fucking gnarly stuff he used to do. You know, I'm like, why does my, my body, I can feel rejection in my wrist and my hands, you know? And you can feel it when you're not doing something authentic. I was drawing him, drawing him for about a week. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, dude this is not me. Like I, 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 you know, not to say I was buff and ripped back in the day, but, but I have gained weight. I've lost hair. I have a family now I'm going to start drawing King, Star King like that. So that's what I did. And that's why it has this new kind of look.
1: It's weird too, though, because it's not, it's, he might look like that, but at the same time, I feel like as I'm watching, as I'm watching this thing, it's like, yeah, he might. And a lot of people go through this. I think this is true to life where it's like, yeah, he might look like that, But on the inside, he's still that same dude. Would you kind of agree with that?
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. We got Tommy Blacka to do the voice again. It's just like the way it was just uh, that first recording session was insane. But yeah, we we pushed the heart and the emoting and the empathy for the character more. So that was a side of King King Starking you couldn't you didn't see as much of in the in the first season.
1: So let's let's backtrack a little bit, though, because for anybody that ha- isn't familiar, because it's been over a decade, like you said, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about just just how would you describe King Star King for anybody that might be going in fresh?
2: Well, I mean, when we first did it, it was just like I, I just created that show with raw power. I didn't understand anything about the industry I didn't, uh, or show business or, or just like I thought Adult Swim only aired cartoons that were fucking raw and they don't care about ratings. And uh, but but I was a fool. They, they do care about ratings. And and, you know, it's it's infrastructure there like anywhere else. So if you watch the first season, it's crazy. It's out of control. Mm-hmm. And like like I was at the time, you know. So, yeah, it's about a space aged guy that. Well, if you really want to go back, Mike Glazo first asked me to do a sister show for Super Jail. That was the very first thing that Mike Lazo, the owner, the creator of Adult Swim, asked me to do. Right, so I created this show called Happy Land, right, where it was the mascots of of like a theme park, and each uh, in the theme park, they, they all the mascots got in wars. It was like warriors almost, mm-hmm. like gang wars, right? And in that, in, the, in one of the mascots was Hank Waffles, right? And and he looked at that. He's like, oh, that's interesting, right? Uh, uh, and then. I only met Mike, Mike Lazo came to California once and I handed him my sketchbook. I, I printed out a, a sketchbook, right? And he, he took his plane ride back to Atlanta and he saw a page in my sketchbook and he called me up and he said, I want you to base a TV show off of this page, right? And in it was King Stark in the character design with a Voltron cat and a bunny rabbit riding him. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's where it went from do a sister show of Super Joe to looking at a sketchbook page, keeping the Hank waffles from the sister show of Super Joe and creating a show off of that.
1: That is so wild, man. That is absolutely wild. How fitting for this show, too. That's, that's for sure. You talk about the different look. Let's backtrack to that, too, a little bit. How did you kind of decide on the art direction for this revival? Because it's not just King Star King. There's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of changes around that as well.
2: As time goes by, you're, you're inspired by all different types of shit. You know, uh, back when I was creating the original King Star King, Kevin O'Neill, who created uh, Martial Law, may rest in peace, he passed away last year, was like a big inspiration of mine. You know, also CF from Christopher Forbes, who did Power Masters. He was also a big ins- inspiration of mine. But that's changed, you know. At this moment, I really love the artwork of Greg Sharp. And so he just happens to be around the same age of mine, And we, we kind of knew each other. And so I hit up Greg, and I just say, hey, Greg, would you like to be the art director for the new King Star King? And he said, fuck yeah. So I was like, yes! I mean, to land your art director, like you're the number one person you want to have to be your art director, I was just so happy and so thankful. And so we did a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, Zoom. He's over in Europe, and I showed him a lot of reference material, and that's how we came up with this look, this new look.
1: I think it's, and we could talk about this because it's in the trailer too, but I think everyone's going to be familiar with the big bad for this special. I got to know, man, what, why Jeff Bezos? I mean, I, I, I know, but what do you tell us? Why Jeff Bezos?
2: Oh my gosh. I, I, to be honest, I, we throw out so many ideas in the writer's room. I mean, at one point it was like, I was working with quite a few writers and, and they were all single. So they wanted to like have King Star King single on a dating app. And that was like the very first outline that we hmm. wrote. But it just, it just went away. And, and, and then we were talking about how King Starking, like Al Bundy, should just have an average job. And so I, I don't even know who said it. Someone said, let's have him work at Amazon. I was like, oh, that's hilarious. I wonder if we can get away with that. And then, of course, you got to call the lawyers up at Adult Swim. And, we're like, oh, yeah. hey. and just like make sure the logo doesn't look too similar. And I was like, OK, cool. So we capitalized the A for Amazon. And I think that's how it all started, was just giving King Starking an average job, you know?
1: Not average circumstances, though, so don't anybody be worried about that. Once you see it, you'll completely understand what's going on there. I got to know, though, outside of King Starking himself, though, who was your favorite character to kind of bring to life in this special? You got a lot of fun ones. Who's your favorite outside of King King? Starking?
2: Andy McDowell's character, Katrina, like his wife. Oh, yeah. Because... Because it's just such an average, normal character, and I was so nervous working with her because I'm like, she reads this script, she's gonna, (laughs) she's gonna fucking say I'm out of here, you know, like. So and then also like I, I couldn't help it like if if it started off as a special, that's what they wanted us to do, right? And then we handed in the first animatic, and they called us back right away, and they said we love this right? We didn't know it was going to turn out this funny or this cool or whatever. So can you make this into a pilot? And I said, yeah, what do you want me to do? And they said, you got to change the ending to make it look like it continues on. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. So that's why we're two months late, by the way, because this was a Christmas special, <laughs> but we had to do so many changes to the story to make an ending uh, continue on that it got pushed. The whole schedule got pushed to Valentine's Day. So, uh, so it's kind of a Valentine's Christmas special. And Now I can't help but think like, oh, if we go forward and do more episodes, which I would love to do, you know, Annie McDowell's character is going to be, I I just want to make her do some crazy gnarly shit. I want King Starking and and Katrina, who's Annie McDowell. I want them to fight Joe Rogan. I want them to (laughs) fight Logan Paul. I want them to fight so many characters, you know?
1: Oh, that would be so great. That'd be so great. Your own little celebrity death match. Yeah. kind of thing that would be awesome that would be awesome but let's talk about the future for a second because obviously we've got this special you want people to watch it because that's the biggest indicator of you know whether we're going to get more stuff or anything like that what do you think the future holds we are actually talking off the air about you got merch ideas too coming out from
4: this
2: oh yeah well right now they're in negotiations of making a skateboard but since like warner brothers merged with adult swim getting your own uh, getting like merch isn't as easy as it used to be when it was just like Adult Swim gave the okays, you know? Oh, sure. So we have to go through all the lawyers and shit over at Warner Brothers, which is like, you know, a lot, it's a lot more corporate, you know, the infrastructure there is very real. So yeah, hopefully our t-shirt, uh, t-shirts, skateboards, and uh, stickers will be coming out. So I'll let you know about that. And definitely you're doing such an awesome job, James, I will fucking hook you up.
1: Nice, nice. I love it when I get the hookup. I will wear it proudly, my friend. Yeah. So I, I got to ask you, JJ, before I let you go, since this kind of morphed into a Valentine's Day release. And mm-hmm. that, by the way, the wreath on the door in the beginning of the episode makes perfect sense now. <laughs> so that thank you for clearing that up, because I've been trying to figure that out in my head since I watched it. Yeah. But I got to know, what does a guy like King Star King get his wife for Valentine's Day?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, just like all of us who are uh, have a significant other, it can't just be simple box of chocolate from See's Candy. we got to be a little more creative because they know. Our significant others know if we oh, put yeah. thought or creativity into what we're getting them. So a guy like King Starking, well, since she found out that he's actually King Starking, I'm sure it's going to be like an intergalactic adventure on his lightning bolt surfboard around Venus, right? Circle round and back to Uranus and then all the way to... Uh, what other planet would be fun to visit? Um, what would one you would like to visit? Can, can we
1: can we get, can we count Pluto? Or are we going to just throw that out the window? Thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Can we go Pluto?
2: We can go to Pluto, dude. Let's do yeah. it. And then right there on Pluto, there'll be some beautiful decorated table, white you know um, white tablecloth with a rose, some fucking meal that that King Star King and Katrina are going to absolutely enjoy with Pusa and Gerbils serving them. And and Hank Waffles cooking
1: it up. Wow. See, so you just you just not only the, the five-course meal you got you know, big vacation, you're trying to make all the rest of us guys look bad here, JJ. So that I mean that's 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 gonna be that's I, I, I think we need to do this now. We need to just get a second season so we could do this.
2: Oh, that would be so fun. I would love to.
1: Well, we got to start off by watching the King Star King special, which is gonna be on Adult Swim midnight on February the 13th. We're also gonna see it next day on HBO Max, and also, by the way, AdultSwim.com is where you can get the first season episodes if you want to go watch those as well and see everything that is just the crazy world of King Star King from this guy, J.J. Villard. Thank you so much, my friend, for joining me. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, James.
1: And of course, that one available now on HBO Max. recorded that interview actually a little bit before the special air, but both of these shows are just so fun in their own ways and have so many passionate fans. Too by the way and you could see the king star king fans that are already enjoying the special and i know the ball masters fans just cannot wait for more from that show so make sure you're watching both of these things on hbo max and for ball masters adult swim you got that coming out midnight on february the 20th so make sure you're watching that there as well again thanks to these wonderful creators for chatting with me this week about all of their great adult swim shows That are going to be coming up next. Got some reviews to talk about. We'll talk about the new DC Legion of Superheroes movie. And I'll do that next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
4: Hi, this is David Hayward from Superdome. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: It's time for us to join the Legion. Legion of Superheroes is here on 4K and Blu-ray combo pack, and it's in digital HD too, by the way, from Warner Brothers Discovery Home Entertainment, which who did provide me with a free copy of this, by the way, so all opinions here are my own. I want to give you my review really quickly of Legion of Superheroes, and, and just right off the bat, this is a Supergirl movie. It says Legion of Superheroes. It really is, I think, a Supergirl movie because we start out with Supergirl, and here's the only spoiler I'm going to give you. It's basically Supergirl. It starts out Supergirl right before Krypton, ends up being destroyed and she goes off to earth and she's you know once she gets there she struggles as a teenager to adapt to the world of earth but i before i even get into this review there's something i need to get off my chest here there's certain things that i don't need to see in movies tv etc anymore and one of those things is krypton being destroyed we've seen that a billion times we get it especially if you're somebody that's watching This Legion of Superheroes movie, odds are, you're a big DC fan anyway. You already know this. You get it. You don't need to spend the time destroying Krypton again. Just like you don't need to kill Batman's parents every time you do a Batman movie. You don't. As a matter of fact, we never need to do that again. We get it. Especially for a big character like Batman or any Superman story. We get it. And Superman is in this. Darren Criss reprising his role as Superman, as a matter of fact. So we get it already. You can stop. You don't have to do that. So I just got to get that annoyance. Out of my way but we, what we basically have here is Meg Donnelly's supergirl is struggling to adapt to life on earth in the 21st century because you know krypton's so advanced and there's all these different things and she just do, she doesn't fit in this world for lack of a better way of putting it so superman says you know hey i got, got an idea for you so he goes with her to the 31st century and says here join the legion academy you might like it here and she runs into mon Allen. You know, there's some sparks there, for lack of a better way of putting it. So she decides that she wants to stay, not just for that reason, but just seems like this world is more suited for her. And she starts to train at the Legion of Legion Academy, where she meets Brainiac Five. And when you see the face of Brainiac, and you are an L, you kind of, you know, you you, you react in a in a certain way, which she does. And then it's it the the, the dynamic between the two of them becomes very very interesting. As the movie goes forward, I think Harry Shum Jr. did a great job as Brainiac 5. I, I think that this cast overall did a really good job. And so, she, you know, this movie deals with, you know, her training and meet, meeting some other young heroes that are very obscure names, by the way. You are going to need to hit the wiki hard for some of these names. Even, even I didn't recognize some of the names of some of these heroes and legionnaires. So, and, and you even see her struggle to adapt to this world as well, Kara does. But but you, you sort of see her kind of start to find her footing, and there's a threat that, that threatens the Legion Academy that they have to figure out and deal with, and there's a couple of twists involved there as well. And and overall, it was a decent movie. Did it blow me away? No, it had, it had a couple of nice little twists to it, but it didn't necessarily blow me away. I thought the action was good when it was there. I thought that the, the young heroes bonding together and being... Basically, for lack of a better way of putting it, this is going to make me sound like an old man, and I hate that. But it's 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 you know very appropriate for their age. You know these are teenagers that we're talking about, or at least young adults, and they they're acting accordingly, quite frankly. So I mean, if that annoys you, that's fine. But at the same time, it's on brand. You have to know that going in. So if you think that you know Legion of Superheroes, ah, it's a deep cut. DC movies, so you got to do certain things X, Y, and Z. No, you don't necessarily have to do that. They, they very much went outside of it, made it a Supergirl story, made it about more obscure heroes that aren't on the main line, and it was almost refreshing in a way to kind of have a little bit of a break from that. Does that mean I never want to see another Batman, Superman, etc. movie? Absolutely not. I do, but at the same time, it was kind of refreshing to take a little bit of a break from that and have more of a Supergirl type movie. And, you know, there's a lot of heavy focus on Brainiac as well. Do we get as many of the Legionnaires in this movie? No, I'm not going to tell you no, as far as that goes. But you see Kara sort of find her way in this movie. And I think that that's a really, really neat thing. You still see Superman, you still see Batman, you still see the Flash, but they're not the main point of this story. And I think that that is the credit to the writers, writers of this thing, Josie Campbell involved in that, and you've also got Jeff Wamester, who's who does a good job directing this thing. The animation style is is I like the new animation style. It's very much as the same as Superman: Man of Tomorrow. If you watch that DC animated movie, it's it's very similar to that. And I, I just the direction that this thing is going is a very interesting one because if you stick around for the post credit scene at the end of this movie, there's something very interesting that happens that hopefully sets up future projects. I don't know what the plan is with Warner Brothers Discovery going forward and, you know, James Gunn and Peter Saffron's plans and what that's going to do for this DC animated universe, but I really hope it's allowed to continue as it is because they're telling some really good stories that we'll probably not see, either never see or not see for a very, very long time on the big screen in live action or in any form in animation in the main connected universe. So I really hope these movies are allowed to continue. Again, not a huge, huge winner for me. I'd watch it again, though, especially since it sort of sets up a larger threat. I'd watch it again. It was was interesting enough, and I thought the acting was, the voice acting was was really, really good. Legion of Superheroes, I would definitely recommend picking this one up and giving it a shot. That's going to do it for my review of Legion of Superheroes. Up next, we'll do one more, talk about Strange World from Disney, and I'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
4: This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast.
1: Finally entering a world of possibilities, Strange World from Walt Disney Pictures Animation is now available on Blu-ray and DVD and digital and I wanted to finally give you my review of this thing. I wanted to wait until it came out on Blu-ray and DVD before I did a review of this. I should tell you that Walt Disney Pictures did give me a free digital copy of this movie for review and all opinions here are my own. So, if you're not familiar with Strange World, it basically deals with three generations of the Clade family. They they started out as explorers, kind of evolved into farmers and other things. And basically, the society that they were living in, it wasn't it was fine, but they you know they were struggling to 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 survive and and have better resources. So, what do you do when that happens? You explore and try to try to find a way to improve your society, which is what they did. And that's kind of where the story. Begins And I, I don't want to spoil too much. I'm going to have to do some spoilers to review this thing. But I really don't want to give away too much. Because basically, you have Jaeger Clay, who's played by Dennis Quaid, the voice of Dennis Quaid. And he is your typical like buff explorer guy, like Indiana Jones times two as far as buffness is concerned. He's got all the tools to be a great adventurer and explorer. But his son, Searcher, who is voiced by Jake Gyllenhaal... Not so much, but he has a, a brilliant mind, and he's a, he's a farmer, and he's kind of I don't want to say an environmentalist because I don't think that that's the proper way to put it. Now I I think that that's maybe how I would describe his son Ethan, who's played by Jaboukie Young White, and and very very well by by White by Young White, as a matter of fact. So you see how the this this Clayd family evolves, and you find out that this movie tends to be more about the clade family than it is about the actual world that they're living in and the mission so that so the story quickly evolves into the clade family themselves and they have their difficulties and you know they don't see eye to eye on a lot of things and you know jaeger there's there's a part of jaeger's story where there's friction between he and searcher for obvious reasons and basically what, what kind of ends up happening here is Everybody gets stuck in their own head, stuck in their own world, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, and it kind of makes them lose focus on what's really important. So it's one of those, you know, it, it's your, one of your typical Disney tropes where, you you know, you lose sight of what's, what's really important and then you kind of figure it out at the end sort of thing. That shouldn't really be a surprise. And if you think that's a spoiler, you don't watch enough Disney movies. They tend to go there quite a bit. The problem with this movie for me initially... Is that it takes a long time for anything to happen? They, they there's the whole story of them, you know, trying to go over the mountain to see what's on the other side, to 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 see if there's something better to help their society over there. And it turns out, you know, they end up falling beneath that, and they find out that there's whole there's this whole other world under the world, hence strange world with all these different creatures and, and all of these different resources. And Pando is kind of what's powering their society. It's almost like, think of it as like a little like a little um, dandelion flower or something like that, but, they, it, but there's energy inside of it. And it's dying off and they're trying to figure out why that is. So that's why they're going on this venture in the first place. And they end up plunging into the depths of, of their world. And that's where they find all this crazy stuff. But the problem is, is that it takes them so long to get there to what the story is actually about and what the heart of it is. And is and that is just, it's it's annoying, for lack of a better way of putting it. And a lot of the characters in this movie are kind of annoying too. Like Searcher, you like him at first, then he becomes very annoying. And Jaeger is very, very annoying for other reasons. And just their relationship and dynamic in general is is, again annoying. I don't know how, I don't know a better way to put it. The best characters in this story are Meridian, who's, who's Searcher's wife and Ethan's mom played by Gabrielle Union and Ethan themselves. Problem is, is that you don't get a whole lot. You don't get a whole lot of them. You get, you get more Ethan because Ethan becomes a bigger part of the story later on, but you don't really get enough of them as a central focus of the story because there's the story so focused on on the father-son dynamic of Jaeger and Searcher and not until really, really close to the end on the father-son dynamic of Searcher and Ethan and that whole family. So it's it's just interesting that it takes them a while to get to the best part of their story. And that's not to say that there aren't good things about the story, there are, but at the same time, it took them forever to get there and you keep waiting for... That thing that makes you go, oh, okay, that's what's that's what this whole thing's supposed to be about, and, and they don't really get there in time. Now, are there incredible character designs in this thing as far as the creatures and things are concerned? And I use the term creatures loosely, by the way, but the the things that are in this strange world, the environment itself that's down there, and and, and of course the creatures themselves. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, it's brilliantly done. I mean, some of it doesn't really break the mold necessarily, but it, but it is a very vast and interesting world that they have down there. As a matter of fact, if you there's a creature feature in the featurettes if you get the Blu-ray DV, if you get the Blu-ray 4K, and you get the digital version of this, you have some of that in the creature feature. So I definitely recommend that you go check that out if you're really interested in that and you have the movie in the first place. There's also the hidden secrets of strange world, which is another good featurette that's part of the special features. As well, and there's a big spoiler that I won't reveal to you about the actual strange world and what it is, and they discover what it is, and that kind of is where Ethan's character comes into play, and you know who he really wants to be and what he really wants to do, is it a large part of what they find out that this world actually is, for lack of a better way of putting it. So there are some interesting elements to this. I know one of the main criticisms about this movie has been, and I'm, I guess I'm going to go there. Is, is that, you know, it kind of beats you over the head with a, I don't want to say a political message, but it's certainly, a, it's, it's perceived as one really a, about environmental issues and stuff like that, that, that we deal with in our world. And there's metaphors there. And some of them are not so subtle. Some of them are subtle at times. And I don't know, maybe it's because I was so annoyed by the family in general, I kind of didn't really pay attention to that. I think now now there's lessons to be learned as a dad, there are things that I focus on more when it comes to the family, you know, you know not pressing your interest on your kids and things like that, letting them find their own way, letting, you know, being supportive of things that they might find interesting, even if you don't find them interesting or think they're worth doing or anything like that so there's there's certain messages there if you're if you're a parent it's going to hit you different than if you're not especially since my kids are still young so I'm still in that whole you know figure it out dad phase sort of thing and trying to be the best dad I can so that I relate to so there's relatable moments in this movie the problem is is that they're heightened they're not necessarily true to life relatable it's it's a relatable message but it's taken to another level of to where it gets to the point where it's actually annoying and it's over the top. Now, it doesn't mean that there, there aren't people like that. There are, but at the same time, it's just taken to a different level. So I guess maybe I didn't notice the other stuff as much because I was so, you know, taken out of it by that, quite frankly. So are there good things about this movie, sure? Are there things that really drive me nuts? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Strange World, it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. It wasn't great. wasn't bad either. When I watch it again, ah, eh, I don't know. It was just kind of okay for me. And, you know, that, that's that's kind of a shame because I really visually, it's a striking movie, but the story itself was just kind of so-so for me. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I have so many amazing guests. I want to thank them all because they were all amazing. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com if you want to get more on us. And of course, follow along on social media. At downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, at downandnerdy on Facebook, at downandnerdypod on TikTok. We're about to hit a thousand followers there. Thank you so much if you're one of those close to a thousand followers. Going to be doing some TikTok live stuff. If you want to join me on that, so make sure it's at downandnerdypod if you're a TikToker. Follow. We're gonna have a lot of fun on there. Going to be a really big extension of the podcast going forward. And also make sure you're subscribing wherever you get your podcasts to, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. I really appreciate that. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.
0: Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show, Hypothetical, is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.